Life expectancy for Red Army soldier at Stalingrad was probably 24 hours. Purely from the firepower that the Germans had at their disposal, they were properly shock and awe tactics. Whereas at the beginning of the battle, the Soviets just didn't have that. And the, the Germans, for instance, ruled the skies for the first three and a half, four months of the battle and, and could just bomb at will. But only through the tenacity and discipline of the Red Army, plus the brutal discipline imposed by the NKVD. Hello and welcome to this week's pod. Today I have a treat for you listeners as we're taking on the mother of all battles, Stalingrad. I'm speaking with the author Ian McGregor who's written The Lighthouse of Stalingrad. This fantastic book zooms into one building in the city, the lighthouse of the title, and describes the soldiers who fought over it. Today we're going to be discussing the battle, personalities involved, its hold over the Russian psyche and Putin's keenness to manipulate Stalingrad for his own ends. Ian is fortunate in that he's one of the last Western historians to gain access to historical records that are now almost certainly impossible to view, now we've entered into a new Cold War. If you check your calendar, you'll know it's December 22, and whilst yes, it's Christmas, it's also the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Stalingrad, which raged over the winter of 1942. This battle can be argued as the turning point of the Second World War, after which Nazi Germany's fate was pretty much sealed. Now, I did briefly touch on Stalingrad when chatting with Gordon Corrigan, but that was more of a discussion on turning points of history, i.e. what would have happened had the Germans ignored the city and gone for the oil fields in the Caucasus instead. But today we really do get to grips with this most savage of all battles. This pod actually works quite well with the episode I did recently with Roger Morehouse talking about the Nazi-Soviet pact. So if you haven't got to that, I recommended it alongside this one as a precursor to the events of the Battle of Stalingrad and Operation Barbarossa itself, which was Germany's invasion of Russia. Ian McGregor is a historian whose previous book, Checkpoint Charlie, is the story of the Cold War in Berlin. So I'll certainly try to get him back to talk about that in the future. Now elsewhere, our latest magazine is out, which features, among other things, articles from Al Murray and Mark Galliotti, and an interview with the great writer William Boyd. As listeners to this podcast, if you use the voucher code HISTORY50% on our website, links in the show notes, you'll get an annual subscription to the EMAG for only four ninety nine, and you can gift that too. In the meantime though, I'm going to hand you over to me talking with Ian McGregor. Ian McGregor, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's fantastic to have you on. We're gonna we're talking about the Lighthouse of Stalingrad, your latest book. I'm very excited to talk to you. Uh, two reasons, really. One is I read the review that William Boyd wrote in the New Statesman, and it it's a glowing review. And I I'm uh, William Boyd is a bit of a hero of mine, so anything he likes must be brilliant. So I've been reading it, and it is. So we're gonna be talking about that and the other reason why I wanted to talk to you is that it fits rather nicely into a podcast I did a couple of weeks ago with Roger Morehouse so the listeners are all primed (laughs) for you now because we've been learning about the um, Nazi Soviet pact yeah we are up to date now 1941 the build-up to to um, Operation Barbarossa 
Hitler and Stalin, best of buddies. And then we get Barbarossa and we're into Stalingrad. So that's why I think this slots in quite nicely, um, mm. selfishly for, for for the podcast. But obviously for you, we want to talk about this this fabulous book, this amazing story, actually. Um, but so I thought we could just kick off by, you know, the invasion of of the Soviet Union by uh, Nazi Germany and mm-hmm. how we get to Stalingrad to start with. Sure. Well, I mean, thank you for having me on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And yeah, William Boyd's one of my heroes as well. So that was a kind of I'm not worthy, pinch myself moment. I uh, couldn't believe it. And, and I've actually got it framed. So why not? Uh, you don't often get that from William Boyd. So uh, but anyway, yeah, back to your point. L- I love Roger's work. First fight. Amazing book. I've told him that. I think it's fantastic. I would urge everyone to go out and buy it because it is a brilliant, brilliant read and long overdue covering that subject. Uh, it's interesting that, yeah, I mean, as a slight segue, some of the I've had some interesting comments online, obviously from uh, Russia to do with the book and what I'm saying about the book and, and things like that and how. You know, you just what sort of comments? Well, just as in, I'm I'm doing down the performance of the Red Army. Uh, I am inventing various tropes or reinventing tropes, reinforcing tropes. Really, Soviet propaganda. Only three or four comments over the last few months, Uh, and then a couple of comments in in talks as well. But as I've I've reinforced the point, and you just picked up on it uh, before Barbarossa. Uh, the Stalin's Russia or Soviet Union and and Hitler's Germany were were bosom buddies and the invasion of France the well invasion of Poland and then the invasion of France wouldn't have really been as successful or as dynamic without all the material wealth that the the Russians were providing the Germans uh, right up until the start of Barbarossa, Barbarossa on twenty second of June nineteen forty one so yeah I mean that's how I start my book. Uh, I've obviously got to tell the reader who might not be aware of the the, the overall uh, background to why Hitler wanted to invade uh, the Soviet Union uh, in the summer of 41. And I try and place it that way. But he was always going to. I mean, that's the whole, his whole raison d'etre to, to, to lead the party he'd led to electoral victory and then seize the country in a dictatorship and then obviously move it towards uh, hostilities that would result in the Second World War. Yeah, I mean, he he wanted to uh, pacify the West. He probably did want to to, to have a, some kind of treaty with Britain if he couldn't defeat it. Uh, wanted to knock out the French, but ultimately, obviously, his main goal was to take on uh, the enemy as he saw it in terms of racial and political points of view. Uh, was the Soviet Union? It was always it was always going to happen. So. It just took him to the summer of 41 to actually instigate that. Uh, and he did have the backing of his military. So you, you're talking about the biggest invasion in his history, as, as everyone knows, or everyone who probably listens to this podcast knows. Uh, over three million men, three giant armies, north, centre and south, aiming for a, a huge cross-section of uh, the European side of Russia. Uh could have worked. He hoped it would. He thought he would do it. Uh, he thought this was the time to, as he said, famously, you kick the door in and the whole rotten ed- edifice crumbles. That's what he thought. But he just uh, it was the exact opposite. The the irony of the, the links that we see today of what's going on in the Ukraine 
I mean, it runs parallel completely. And that's the kind of things I've, I've been picking up from questions and the audiences that I've been speaking to. But yeah, I mean, uh, just that, on the that, Ukraine, sorry to interrupt you. Sure, just on, go. on the Ukraine where you mentioned that is, is it, is it a bit like the roles are reversed in that, um, yeah. The Russians think that the Ukrainians, everything would collapse when they invaded. And of course, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the kind of thing I've been trying to pick up on, especially with students when I've been talking at colleges and schools is, is to say it's a recasting of, of the main of, of the main events and, and the main protagonists. So instead of the, uh, the heroic defender, you've now got a remorseless invader. Uh, and so that that's the way you look at it. And the, the parallels that run between how Ukraine is defending itself uh, against this, obviously, army that we all thought was bigger, better, more powerful, and would easily swat it aside, hasn't happened. But that's where, again, you've got this irony of the Red Army was kept going for the first half of the war, definitely by, oh, well, going into the second half as well, obviously, but by Lend the Lend-Lease program that the Allies uh, agreed to give them, in terms of machinery, materiel, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that's exactly what we're doing with the Ukraine. So, that, you know, that, that, that's a well-trained, uh, motivated, that's a key thing, motivated army that's led very well, which you could argue that's where we are at Stalingrad too, but they're armed to the teeth by the NATO countries. And so it's, it's very, it, it's bizarre, actually, the similarities that we're, we're seeing uh, in today's conflict compared to, Stalingrad in 42-43 and those questions come up all the time every single talk I've done I've done over 25 talks since July up and down the country and there's always at least two to three questions after my presentation about that Uh, I don't think which is right it's it's really interesting but so yeah so in my I, I talk about Barbarossa I talk about how this summer campaign that should have knocked out the Red Army destroyed the European Red Army, I should say, uh, over three million POWs, over nearly three million killed or wounded. Uh, Hitler and his commanders obviously thought uh, there can't be any more uh, or what there is isn't as many as we've just taken out off the battlefield. But they're outside the gates of Moscow. They're outside the gates of Leningrad to the north. They're going into the Caucasus already in southern Russia. And that's when obviously... Uh, uh, the rainy season comes, turns everything to quagmire. They haven't, uh, they completely hadn't planned on logistically how they're going to maneuver through the country. Uh, they weren't as motorized as everyone thinks. It's, it's, it's a horse-drawn led army in the main, uh, even though they've got over 3,000 tanks. Uh, but you can't cover that, that amount of territory, which we'd see the following year when they're going down to Stalingrad and down into the Caucasus. You can't cover that amount of terrain where the roads are, uh, are in a terrible state, the railway systems are very basic to supply your armies. Uh, you just can't do it without the weather taking control at one point or the other. And that's, that's where Hitler's armies were hit by the, what would become famously the Russian winter in, in the first season of campaigning where Barbarossa would grind to a halt. More Axis German troops mainly fell out of the line through frostbite than being wounded in fighting. But Again, what the parallels that I talk about in my book are the the tenacity and the discipline that Hitler tried to uh, impose upon his frontline commanders by saying, we don't retreat. Uh, we're going to stand and fight. We're going to protect the areas we capture. We're going to set up these Kessels 
of uh, fortified regions, even if they're army size, famously at Demiansk, as the, the Ninth Army, well over 100,000 men was trapped there or encircled. But they were kept alive, they were kept supplied until they were strong enough to then be either rescued or they could fight their own way out. And it's that kind of mindset which would lead to the disaster the following winter at Stalingrad. Uh, and that's why I, I, in my book, the first, the first, I suppose, quarter of the book is laying the groundwork for the reader to say this is why the the uh, the offensive the following summer, Case Blau, Case Blue, uh, that again would kick off in June uh, '42. It's very similar to what happened the following year. They just didn't learn their lessons. And any commander that was pushing against Hitler and uh, as as had as had with Barbarossa. I mean, he'd, he'd fired over 50 of his top commanders by the end of Barbarossa, by the end of the winter campaigning anyway, uh, because he thought he knew better and he was surrounding himself with yes men. Uh, and again, that would, that would lead to disaster the following year. So uh, who were the German commanders um, on the one side and the Russian, Russian commanders on the other, their counterparts? Because Stalin well, wasn't afraid of um, getting rid of famously in the thirties, he had executed huge number of, of military leaders, hadn't he? Well, yeah, I mean, you said uh, amidst the, uh, I suppose, the uh, the purges in the 1930s, which had killed hundreds of thousands of Soviet citizens, he was then turning uh, definitely, I suppose, by the beginning of the Second World War, when Russia wasn't involved in it, it was just obviously a Western, uh, you got Poland, then France, the Red Army had been, or the, the leadership of the Red Army, uh, from Marshall down to probably divisional commanders, had been pretty much decimated. Uh, Trump, whether they're through trumped-up charges or or just it, politically motivated people getting taken out with grudges, whatever, but that that's uh, had severely hampered the uh, the evolution. Uh, of an army to then be able to have the command structure in place to take on this kind of juggernaut that was going to hit them in uh, June 1941. Uh, I mean, they had, they had a, uh, like I said, I mean, they had nearly five to six million men in the field. Uh, they had huge tank armies, they had a, a, a very good air force. But underlying that was the fact that Stalin just wouldn't believe that the Germans were going to attack him. Uh, he didn't want to believe it. Uh, he refused to have to believe any kind of intelligence that was put in front of him. Uh, he didn't believe any kind of allied intelligence that was coming his way. He just thought that was a plot for him to turn against Hitler. Uh, he still was clinging to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, still sending the supplies west to the Germans. Uh, and so even though he's got these troops massing on his borders, he swallowed the line from, from Hitler that, oh, they're just on manoeuvres, they're just refitting because they've been fighting in the West. And some of these units, we're, we're trying to train up for Operation Sea Line where we're going to invade the UK. Uh, and again, he, he fooled himself into believing that. So obviously the, the attack caught the, the, the Soviet forces on, on the hop. Yeah, and, and he's fired, as is the Soviet way. Hitler would, Hitler would uh, uh, retire them and Stalin would shoot them. That's, that's the difference. And we could say, well, there's the leadership for you. Hitler's not getting rid of them. But the thing is, by the time of Stalingrad uh, and the failures, the massive failures the Red Army was suffering against the Germans, mainly led by Stalin's obstinacy, at least he was starting to learn. And so he was actually thinking, 
I'm not the leader or the, sorry, I'm not the military frontline commander. I think I am. Uh, and some of the cronies I put in charge of these armies, like Timoshenko, who, who led the great uh, spring offensive in, in 42, just before uh, uh, Case Blau began, which caught, again, caught the Germans slightly by surprise and delayed Case Blue beginning because they had to take care of this uh, localized offensive by the Russians. It was those kind of things. Even when they had reinforcements coming through, they had more material coming online in terms of tanks, artillery, et cetera, et cetera. They were being wasted through grandiose plans from Stalin and implemented by in in the main cronies who just weren't effective frontline commanders because a lot of the, the, the previous guys have been taken out. It's only through those mistakes that he starts bringing men in and believing in people like obviously at the top of the ladder, Zhukov, uh, Rokossovsky, but then in a localized way, uh, people like, as we'll see, as we'll talk about, uh, uh, Vasily, Gro uh, Vasily Grossman, Vasily Cherkov, who would be the commander of the 62nd Army, who would defend the center of, uh, of Stalingrad and to the south of Stalingrad, Shimilov, who was the 64th Army. And these were very effective leaders. They, uh, and what I, what I found when I was researching them, what I talk about in the book is they're from uh, army front commanders down to uh, army and divisional commanders. All of them, in the main, by then, by 42, are very experienced, seasoned guys. Uh, they survived the purges. Chukov, for instance, he'd been leading a regiment of cavalry in the Russian Civil War and survived the purges. Had, had been luckily been in China when Barbarossa happened. Uh, he was he was a military advisor there, and so he was one of those by chance really effective frontline commanders that managed to escape the disaster of Barbarossa, wasn't punished because he wasn't there, but then would come into effect and, and prove brilliantly able in 42-43. Well, you mentioned Rosakovsky. Was, wasn't he, was he being beaten up? Or uh, I might yeah, have got yeah. this wrong. He was being beaten up and then he was, um, uh, and then he was sort of expecting to be shot, but then, then, they, then um, someone comes in and, and says, well, actually, we might need you. Um, well, that, that happened. I mean, there's there's several commanders you could say that survived by literally the skin of their teeth uh, from being condemned. Uh, Rokossovsky, yeah, he was he was one of them. It, it's just the capriciousness of the regime and who you knew might get you off the hook to a degree, and whether you had a, a direct line through whatever uh, tiny link uh, to Stalin. So Rokossovsky had, uh, I think, a kind of similarity in, in uh, a religious background to Stalin. And they had that kind of link. And that's, that's why they got on. But, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that was the case. And, and, and we will talk to, I'll, I'll, I'll drop in a couple of anecdotes at the end of the talk. And that, that goes to after the battle as well, when you're looking at commanders that were victorious, that had a good reputation, that then would fall foul of the regime and would just disappear until Stalin died. I mean, we can talk about one of those at the end, but uh, yeah, which again, I, I found out through the research and it's just, uh, it's draw dropping. Well, well Cherkov, who you've mentioned, it, he's a key part of the book and the book yeah. opens with his funeral and it, it's um, yeah. much later. Um, it's yeah. a bit of a spoiler, but... Um... Well, no, no, it's fine. I mean, I, 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 I found it fascinating because obviously mm. uh, we know about him in the West, uh, Obviously, he's made more famous in the West by Anthony Beaver's brilliant book because he, he talks about him in detail there because he was the commander of the 62nd Army that, that fought uh, 
room by room, house by house, in the sewers, in the streets, and he led by example. So where where he's like a hundred yards, any one point he's a hundred yards, hundred meters, whatever you want to call it, from the front line for where the Germans are fighting his troops. Paulus Friedrich Paulus, who was the commander of the, the Sixth Army, who's who's against him, was at one point fifty kilometers behind the front line, uh, and he total opposites. He wasn't really a, a front line commander wasn't a frontline veteran commander definitely uh and the, and that's kind of the difference that's the kind of guy you don't want in charge of an army when you're involved in this really horrific urban battle that that it turned out a meat grinder that it turned out to be but yeah i mean I, I i wanted to open because i thought uh again all the russians i talked to that i interviewed uh he's held up He's 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 the Russian. I suppose he's a Russian equivalent of uh, uh, George Patton or uh, Montgomery. I mean, he's venerated, and you would argue his performance at Stalingrad. He deserves that. So it was just it was unique and very very interesting to interview people that were eyewitnesses to the funeral that they gave him. Because by the time he died, he was a marshal. He was a retired marshal. And if you are a, a marshal of the Red Army or the or the Russian Soviet forces, I should say. You're normally, as is the tradition, cremated and your ashes are buried in the walls of the Kremlin. Everybody, that's how it that's how it works, because you are at the top of the tree in terms of uh, a militaristic society. Uh, but he such was his reputation and veneration that they actually granted his family's wishes that he get his his funeral procession and burial at the city where he made his name and arguably to most Russians, all Russians, it's the it's the main pillar of everything they celebrate about the Great Patriotic War, the victory at Stalingrad, and that's why. So it was great to interview the eyewitnesses, and it was great to interview his grandson, who gave me a lot of the detail that's in that prologue that talks about everything that happened that day. Uh, and it's very moving. I mean, it's, you know, you can't dismiss that. And that's the irony that I would say right at the beginning now, if I, people that are listening, I, I finished writing the manuscript uh, a good three to four months before the Ukraine situation started. And uh, I didn't really need to to tweak it. I mean, it, what's there is what I wrote. And I, I, mean, I, I think I, I, I added a tiny little bit in the introduction to talk about, I'd already written about how Putin uses all the, the various uh, touchstones of the great patriotic war for Russians as a way to to further his own ambitions and his own political kind of system of government I'd, I'd already you know I was writing that way back in last you know a year a year last September so uh, that hasn't changed well I wanted to ask you a little bit about that actually so we may as well mention it now but you know you've written this 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 fantastic book I mean the St Stalingrad story is it, even if people don't know the the story intimately they are aware that it is this sort of epic battle and i wondered you you know the russians fight heroically and defeat nazis in this and that and that's been the view um uh that 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 sort of remains the view and there's a kind of huge amount of sympathy over uh, over, over russia in in yeah. this conflict obviously because they're fighting the nazis yeah. but you know we're now at a stage where um the Russians are now behave, you know, committing the most horrific crimes in Ukraine. Mm. And um, how does it feel like you, you know, your your heroes are the Russians in this, and yet Russians today are fighting in Ukraine. And yeah, but I was going to say, I mean, that it wasn't just the Russian army 
at Stalingrad, I mean, all the ethnic groups within the Soviet Union, one way or another, were represented at the, not just in the city, because obviously the Stalingrad front ran for hundreds of miles north and south. Uh, I mean, it's just vast. I mean, that's why it's such a, an enormous battle of millions of combatants, uh, because it's, it's just a vast area across the Russian steppe that, that ended up, by the end of that summer, all eyes are on Stalingrad uh, because everything else is failing in the Caucasus. So that's where Hitler wanted to make his get his final victory that would prove the whole summer's expenditure of men and materiel was worth it. Uh, and obviously, was Stalingrad. it just taking the city? I mean, you know, he wanted the city. The name is important as well. For yeah, him. yeah. That, well, that's what was driving it by the end of the summer because during the summer, the, 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 Stalingrad was only ever meant to be uh, a place that the one wing of the army it was supposed to be done in very logical chronological phases and one of the phases before they plunged south on mass down into the Caucasus to capture the oil fields at Mykop and Grozny was they would get to Stalingrad and that shores up their their flank their eastern flank just in case there are extra Russian forces out there that they don't know that could then cut into along this very long front over 1500 kilometers because that's how far the the, the Axis forces had pushed in. It just shores that up. It's like a giant gate that would stop them. Uh, and the plan was, even if they couldn't capture it or they didn't want to capture it because it's a huge, very elongated city, it's over 25 miles long along the River Volga, uh, they could besiege it. But the most important thing is they would stop river traffic along the Vol Volga, which is the arterial riverway that was taking lots of uh, supplies from the Allies from the Caspian Sea all the way up, uh, but also supplying oil and everything else. But so they would stop that. And that was just one of the phases. But as everything unraveled during the summer, because logistically it's it's a nightmare, as we just said, it was it was mirroring what had happened at Barbarossa. You just can't conquer these vast swathes of land and have an overextended army uh, on very bad roads, knowing the Russian winter is going to hit sooner or later. Uh, that that's that's a worry, and then this time the Russians were the, the Soviets were putting up an effective defense, as in defend, retreat, defend, retreat. They weren't getting kind of bogged down in mad orders from Stalin to stand and fight at any cost and being encircled in their hundreds of thousands and being captured, which is what Hitler expected that summer. Again, he thought it'd be a repeat of Barbarossa, and it wasn't. But the trouble was. If they're not capturing all these troops like they were the year before, it feeds into or is feeding into Hitler and his lackeys uh, mindset of this inferior race and this inferior army is has disintegrated. And now I can have everything all in one go. So instead of following the, the, the army's logical plan of capturing everything phase by phase, I'm going to split my army in two, separate them by over a thousand miles as one half goes down into the Caucasus to get me the oil right now and the other half will go on to get stalingrad uh and that was just a disastrous move i mean even hindsight hindsight's great says it's a disastrous move but even he was being told by his chief of command halder this this is uh not the way to do things but he, he wasn't listening by then so but yeah so stalingrad it had its name but it was as i say my presentation it was by the time that Germans are outside the gate, Stalingrad was a Soviet kind of model city. It, it had been heavily invested in all through the 30s. And that was going to be Stalin's first showpiece city to say this is what a, a modern Soviet society can build. 
and it's got these amazing factories that are churning out all the all this uh, material and machines for agriculture and the economy. We're going to export lots of it. Uh, we're going to export the grain that we're reaping in from the Ukraine as well. Uh, and I can build this amazing modern city that's got brilliant apartment blocks that you'd find in the West, hot and cold running water, gas mains, electric mains, all plumbed in. It's got department stores, theatres, boulevards, parks. What an amazing paradise to live in. That's what it looked like when the Germans arrived. Uh, and that's why, was, and obviously it'd be called Stalingrad, so he wasn't going to let it go that easy. But as I say in the book, there was a, there was a great feeling that, because you've got to remember, Stalingrad was a great victory for the Soviets, but up until then, they hadn't had any great victories. They, they'd had heroic defences, huge defeats. Uh, like I said, over 6 million men lost in the first year alone. They'd had a disaster that spring. So in their mindset, their psychology was, yes, we're fighting to the end, but are we ever going to win? But we're speaking 80 years. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would have, you know, to the day. I mean, it was happening over a, a yeah, yeah, yeah. period of winter. So these factories proved to be the real problem for the, um, well, for both sides, really. I mean, it just they just churn up bodies, don't they? The, the yeah. factories are exploded and they become, um, you know, um, defensive, easily defended positions. Well, yeah, I mean, the whole city was. The Germans got their first, Sixth Army got their first shocking kind of uh, realisation of, wow, this is going to be harder than we thought when they were coming up to, from the south and going through the south of the city. Because basically the city's in very recognisable three parts. So in the south was the old city, which had been called Tsaritsyn up until about 1924 when they changed it to Stalingrad. And that was the original part. And that had always been as almost like a Midwest American kind of town. It's cobbled streets or mud, mud streets that were rock hard in the summer and just quagmires in the wintertime. Uh, two to three storeys, maximum wooden made buildings. Uh, and that's where a lot of the, the agricultural workforce before they built the factories were living. Uh, but then obviously once uh, Stalin's five-year plans and Goss plan had been kicking in, a lot of foreign money was being invested in the Soviet Union. So the factories you're talking about, these were to the north of the city. Uh, they, they were huge. And there was three main factory sites. There was uh, a chemical works, uh, steel works, obviously, and, and there was a, an armament works too. A lot of that had been built with American, French and British money because th this was economically, it was, it was a great investment. You, you, there was a big, big plan which Stalin was regime was overseeing that was going to make this a success. It had to work because it was the first attempt to make it work in the, on the western side of, of Russia. So by the time the Germans get there, they're looking at the old half of the city, that part of the city in the centre, as I said, there's this new dynamic modern city centre. And then you've got the factory district. The bombings that they gave, the terror bombings that started on the 23rd of August and carried on for the next two weeks uh, reduced the city's rubble, which a lot of, again, a lot of listeners will know, turned it into a perfect kind of killing ground for urban combat. But that gets to your point. So first sign of trouble is where they're trying to take the, the massive grain factory that was in this, the old part of the city, uh, which you can go to, well, you won't be going there now, but you could have, well, I, I visited it and it, it's a, it's a massive uh, shrine on the outskirts of the grain elevator, which is now up and running as, as the factory district back is now. 
that's where they lost a lot of men just trying to take the grain elevator from one company of Red Army soldiers who put up an amazing fight. And it took almost a whole German division to, to subdue them in various ways with a huge expenditure of, of shells. I mean, the Germans dropped about 2.9 million shells, artillery and, 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 and the Luftwaffe uh, over the course of the battle, 2.9 million shells. Uh, but then the centre of the town, that's where you get this, this bitter, famous hand-to-hand -hand fighting for the sewers, for buildings room by room, floor by floor, again which is what i talk about in my book and there what you're talking about again is is these huge colossal battles for these massive i mean they are you just have to see them to believe how big they are these massive sized factories and steelworks uh where again it's easy to ambush people it's easy to put up uh, a defense with a small force to take on a bigger force much larger force which can negate their artillery and air power as long as you can have some men to, to, with there with machine guns and, and uh, grenades to put up a fight, you can you can hold on as long as, as 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 possible. If you can keep supplying them across the Volga, and again, that was one of the the big heroic things you know about the battle is it's just this incredible tenacity of the the Soviets to to keep the the supply line going across the Volga, despite being bombed to bits in daylight every hour of the day. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the Volga there because there's a, I don't know if you've, I don't know how many of the listeners have, have seen the film Enemy at the Gates, the Jean-Jacques Arnaud film, mm. where the, the, the hero uh, is Jude Law. Jude Law, yeah. Um, but he's sort of, when he arrives on the Volga, he's sort of handed a gun, uh, a rifle. I know, I know. So they share a rifle. Uh, well, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm at pains to tell people it's the biggest pile of hokum you can watch. It's yeah. a great movie, don't get me wrong. I think it's great that it, it, it gets people's interest in Stalingrad because the one thing you can take from the movie is the, uh, the losses, the, the, the scale of the fighting and the brutality of the regime on both sides. That, that's, a, that's kind of accurate. But the, the irony, my book focuses on two units fighting for the center of the city because that's what I want to do. I want to tell a very personal story yes. and drill down and not talk about grand armies, strategic battles, that kind of thing, because the, the world doesn't need another book like that. I wanted to tell the human story. So it's about the 71st Infantry Division, which was one of the elite infantry divisions of the German army that was there, that was in the vanguard of the invasion, but the 13th Guards Rifle Division on the Red Army side, which again is hugely famous. That's the division that Jude Law's in that crosses the river. And again, it's it, it makes me smile when I think about it because it just didn't happen the way that obviously the film's portraying as in they get handed, but they cut, they arrive by train. They just herded onto boats. Here's one rifle between three. And maybe if you're lucky, you get five rounds of ammunition off you go. And by the way, if you try and run back, we're going to shoot you. It, that didn't happen. Uh, the, they're actually quite well armed, weren't they? I was reading. in your Oh, book, they were, right? yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean, again, what I'm sure we'll talk about it, but I, you know, I, all my, all the, the the narrative in my book is supported by dozens and dozens of first-hand testimonies, whether they're diaries, whether they're letters, reports, battle logs. It, to some degree, you have to be careful when you're reading the Soviet battle logs, definitely. Uh, but it's based on all these testimonies that I've researched, and these were donated uh, to the museum in Volgograd from late 50s all the way through to about the mid-70s. And I've, I've pieced together the story from officers and ordinary uh, guardsmen 
in the 13th Guards about what happened in their fight, because they're a metaphor for the Red Army itself at Stalingrad. So even though in, in, in the Soviet Union today, and especially Russia, the 13th Guards Rifle Division are rightly seen as, you know, they're, they're way up, they're elevated to almost mythical status. Uh, is there a, an equivalent in, in, in like the US or the British Army? Well, I, I'd say probably uh, 13th Guards. If you're in America, and I'm saying this only because I've, I published the book, I published Ambrose's books on Band of Brothers. I would say that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's that. It's, it's like uh, the 101 or the 82nd Airborne. Right. Uh, it's, it's that kind of scale. Because they were, I mean, the 13th Guards were originally a, a paratroop formation. And they were just turned into infantry because obviously they were they were going to be in a an infantry battle from Barbarossa onwards. They didn't have a need for paratroopers then, uh, and they had that kind of mindset. But uh, yeah, it's uh, they were they arrived on echelon. But get back to my point. They're a metaphor. They were they were roughly around ten thousand strong. They were the ones that crossed the river in the first few weeks of September to meet this German juggernaut that was taking the city. Uh, and pushed them back. But then they were the ones that, that stayed there for the whole battle and were in this just proper, bloody, violent slugfest for the centre of the city for the next four and a half months. And of the 10,000 men went, that went over, from that original 10,000, there's probably less than 250 were left. I mean, obviously, they were, they were heavily reinforced with replacements. And other, and other regiments and and, and and such like came over to hold the line for them. But that, that's a metaphor for every division that went over there. It was a meat grinder. I mean, life expectancy for a Red Army soldier at Stalingrad was probably 24 hours. That is unbelievable. Purely from the firepower that the Germans had at their disposal. I mean, they, they were properly kind of shock and awe tactics. Uh, Whereas at the beginning of the battle, the, the, the Soviets just didn't have that. And the, the Germans, for instance, ruled the skies for the first three and a half, four months of, of the battle and, and could just bomb at will. And like I said, it's only through the tenacity and discipline of the Red Army Plus, which is where Enemy at the Gates is, is maybe a little bit accurate, and, and the brutal discipline imposed by the NKVD. Uh, and, you know, quite a few people were executed, mainly officers and, and, and senior officers. They were the ones who paid the price. But that's what I try and tell them the story anyway. But they, they were, and yeah, they were armed to the teeth. And they were very, very well supplied. And Radimtsev says in very letters that, again, he wrote to the museum director in Volgograd during the 60s. He'd actually said to his commanding officer, who was two down from Churkov, saying, can't take my men over here if we don't have anything to fight with. We've been on the march the last three or four days to get here first because they, these divisions were coming down in echelon to then be sent over the, Vol the Volga into the city. And he was one of the first. And he said, well, we're, we're not effective if we haven't got anything to fight with. And so they, they really did make a huge effort to scrounge and find as much arms as possible uh, to provide them. Uh, and Chukov's waiting on the other side for them. He's he's on the front line. He's 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 getting the hell bombed out of him, and he hasn't got many troops to 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 hold the line. He does need to get them over, but he again he needs to get them over if they're going to be effective. And to be effective, you need armaments. So this this thing about one in three had arms is is just not true. 
Great stuff. I love exploding myths on here. That's great. Um, well, look, we've been talking for thirty over 30 minutes. And we haven't really mentioned the lighthouse, the yeah, uh, yes. or Pavlov's house, um, which, you know, you talk about an intimate story. And this is this is where yeah. it is. And, and, and it's this becomes this iconic building that yeah. for, for both sides, really, not just for the Russians, the, the, the Germans. Yeah. Are well, it, it's it, yeah, you're right. But it's funny, though, because originally years and years ago i'd obviously read about pavlov's house and i from the material that i was reading i was thinking wow what a story this is incredible uh and you read about all the losses that they suffered during the battle and the sacrifice and everything you you, you want to believe it because there were several actual defenses of buildings like the grain elevator that i was talking before which did happen so you think, well, Pavlov's house did happen. And it's, it's the, which is what I say about Putin and everything else at the beginning of the book. It's if the greatest thing to happen in modern Soviet history is, is winning the Great Patriotic War, the pillar of that is the victory at Stalingrad. And within the victory of Stalingrad, one of the pillars of Stalingrad is Pavlov's house. It just, it drips down. And it's too big to fail almost. And that's what I found out with my research because I thought I can't just write about this without thoroughly checking the facts. And I, I was lucky enough to, again, this is over the course of two and a half years, nearly three years. I was, I made very good friends with one of the directors of the Volga Grad Museum, which sits on the banks of the Volga. And it's been around since the, the late fifties. And he was saying, well, no one comes to our archive. Everyone wants to go to Podolsk quite naturally, which is the military uh, archive outside of Moscow. And obviously, Anthony Bevo has been there. Lots of other historians have been there. You can't go there now. It's impossible. I'd, I would have gone there, but I, I couldn't get access. So I, I Sir Guy's this guy's now. And he said, well, we'd love to have you down. And by the time I was about to go down, lockdown happened and the pandemic happened. But he still said, well, we'll, we'll get you a, a specialist travel visa that, that will get you into the country and then you can just come down and stay here for seven to 10 days and just have as much access of the, the, the archives as you want. And to cut a long story short, that's what happened. But talk about the lighthouse. Just, that's that, the code. Sorry, just before we get onto the lighthouse, I'm just interested in that quickly, because um, if you were, if you're, you can't get to the archives in, in the Kremlin or in, in uh, Moscow. Yeah. Um, for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you know, officialdom doesn't want you there. No. But Stan, uh, uh, Volgograd, you can get there. It's a sort of a back door in, isn't it? Yes. Not, probably not anymore. But uh, yeah, because it's, it's over a thousand miles south of They Moscow. didn't get the memo. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But I, it's, uh, yeah, I, 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 you could probably argue that. But, but this is before what's happened has happened. Of course. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just interested. The, it, it seems the way the country's been locked down, not just in all sorts of ways, censorship, mm. uh, expression of dissent, all that's mm. been obviously trampled upon. But when I was there, none of, none of that had happened. So it's, it's, you know, I freely moved around, freely moved around Moscow when I was there uh, and just got on a plane like you would if you were living in the UK, I got on a plane, flew down to Volgograd, got met, got put up in a hotel and which was nearby the archive. And then I just went into the archive for a whole week. And, and I'd, I'd given them a list of the 13th guards, uh, officers and ideally some men that related to Pavlov's house that I wanted to, I said, have you got any, have they given you any testimonies? Cause they've, they've got tens of thousands of testimonies at this archive because they had a campaign 
in the 50s and 60s. And going into the 70s, like I said, uh, almost a national campaign of, did you fight at Stalingrad? If you did, we, we would love to have your personal testimonies of the unit you fought with, what you did, et cetera, et cetera. So there are this, there's this huge mass treasure trove, you could call it, of, of testimonies uh, and personal records. Some of the, like uh, the, the, the commander of the 13th Guards Rifle Division, Alexander Redimsev, all his personal papers are there which was incredible to look at. No one had looked at them since he, he donated them, I think, in 65. And it was brand new. The folder I opened it didn't look like it had ever been touched. So that was amazing. And, yeah, so I, I, I had the list. And so by the time I got there, they'd spent about two months researching everything, the names I'd given them. And I was met. I probably had about eight to 900 files to look through in all the days I was there. And we, we only got through just over 400 of them and I had a really good translator who's a very good friend of mine and he's a historian local historian and he sat with me and we just went through it I mean we spent nine hours ten hours a day there uh, and I came away with probably it's about 180,000 translated words from about pff, 200 key figures that I wanted that I thought would help me tell the story and so to get to your point about the lighthouse, it just disproved that the whole myth, trope, whatever you want to call it, of, for those that don't know, Pavlov's house is a four-story building that survived all the bombardments. It was a ruin. You can find photos of it online. But it was in no man's land between the, uh, the Germans, obviously, and, and the Soviet defenders of the 13th Guards Rifle Division. It was then captured by this storm group because that's what we haven't talked about this this new tactic that Churkov brought into the battle where instead of attacking on mass on a broad front he would use storm group teams of six to eight men armed to the teeth with machine guns bags of grenades pocket artillery they called them and if that didn't work then bayonets and sharpened spades to take these houses room by room and that's how they took the lighthouse it was called the lighthouse because it was the biggest building in the area so if you get to the top of the building if you're an artillery spotter you've got a 360 degree view uh for five kilometers in any direction so if you're the germans you'd be able to see the russians coming across the volga and if you're the russians you'd be able to see where the germans are massing for the next attack so both sides wanted it and that's why it was called the lighthouse uh but the, the myths are that this team, this six to eight man team led by Sergeant Pavlov took this massive house. I mean, it's a huge, huge building and was reinforced by his platoon of 28 men. And ironically, all 28 men came from different republics within the Soviet Union. So the whole Soviet Union is represented in this house. And then the fight becomes like the Magnificent Seven, where they hold off the might of a German division and airstrikes and everything else. And the, the siege lasted 58 days and then they were relieved and it's all a big happy ending. A few of them were killed. But that's not what happened. Not what happened at all. And uh, quite a few people that were there are airbrushed out of history, which I've reintroduced in the book because I found their testimonies. I've For a start, Pavlov's house, is that the correct name for it? Well, no, it should be named after the lieutenant that was in charge of the 
company of men, not just 28 men. There was at least a company at any one time. There was at least a company of Red Army soldiers in the house. It's a huge, it's a fortress. How many is that? It's about, it was about 100. It's, uh, there was at least two to 300 men in the building at any one time. And they were constantly reinforced because they built a supply trench going from the, the Soviet front line. It went about uh, 100 meters into no man's land to where Pavlov's house were, was. Uh, and so they were ferrying the wounded out, putting reinforcements in, keeping them resupplied. Uh, and the, the biggest thing is the Germans didn't attack it en masse with a division. They didn't have a division. They did have divisions around the area. But by then, as you said at the beginning, the fighting had moved to the north to capture the factory districts. The Germans had captured 95% of the center of the city. So where Pavlov's house is, it's only 100 yards away. The, the Volga is to its back. It's only 100 yards away. The 13th Guards were really, it's almost, it's, it's very equivalent to, say, Gallipoli. They were hanging on right on the water's edge by the skin of their teeth, but, and the Germans just couldn't get rid of them, kept trying, but couldn't. So that part of the line was almost like a rest area. And that's what I, again, that's what I discovered reading both sides, saying, well, you know, we, yes, we put in some attacks, on this Soviet house that they captured from us, but we didn't, we didn't have the men or machinery to launch the kind of attacks that every Russian knows. Now, if you're a student of history or, uh, and you're learning it at school or you watch films or documentaries in Russia and you have done for the last 20, 30, 40 years, they all know Pavlov's house. It's celebrated. It's this heroic metaphor for the heroic sacrificial defense of Stalingrad, but it, it, just didn't happen yeah and uh and and these testimonies go all the way up to divisional commanders uh and like i said the the, the original the actual commander got written out of history and i was actually i think it was the third day i was there i was taken out for dinner by a group of local historians i'd never met them before but they just wanted to have a chat with me because they were so pleased the Western historian had come to Volgograd to look at the archives. And they said, we've actually been running a campaign for the last couple of years to get the name of the house changed because it shouldn't be Pavlov. It should be Afanasyev, Lieutenant Afanasyev. Uh, he's the, the real hero of the defence. Well, now we're talking about names. Um, a, recent, a very recent development is the people of Volgograd, I've heard, are keen to, or there's a certain group of uh, people in Volgograd are keen to have the city renamed to Stalingrad. Well, it, 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 I was gonna, no, it's, I was, it's kind of. It, it's basically they they had a uh, a local vote plebiscite, whatever you want to call it, uh, a few years ago. Probably, I think it was just after Putin had seized the Crimea, so it's like 2010, 2011, I think it was. Right. And there was a vote then. Uh, do we want to change the name back to Stalingrad? And 65% of the city said no. But what they do do, and what, but I would argue the city's happy with it, the occupant, the, the citizens themselves are happy with it, judging by the people that I still talk to, they're allowed to change the name back to, they're allowed to revert back to Stalingrad on signs as you're driving into the city uh, eight times a year. And that's relevant to eight specific dates in the calendar year that are relevant to things that happened in the great patriotic war. One of them is 22nd of June. One of them's the 19th of November for the, 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 the great counter offensive uh, operation Uranus, which surrounded the sixth army. Uh, I would imagine, I, I would not be surprised if there's a move, if Putin manages to stay in power and he manages to actually extricate, they managed to extricate themselves from Ukraine and save some face. 
I would imagine Stalingrad might come up again. They might change the name back. Uh, It's just a weird thing. He, Again, if you get if you go online, you'll see it yourself. It's uh, it, way before Ukraine. For years, Putin has made a beeline for Volgograd on all the the specific dates that relate to the battle. To be there as the president, all the flags are waving. Uh, the Mamayev Kurgan, the big the big co- commemoration complex that's Huge built on the statue. famous hill. Yeah, the Motherland Cause. It's taller than the Statue of Liberty, and that is an amazing backdrop for a political speech or anything else he wants to say. I mean, obviously he doesn't do it now because they've all passed away, but that's where he would meet all the veterans. Uh, it's that kind of thing. It, it means to the, the Russian psyche, it's huge, Stalingrad. I mean, you could you know, quite rightly, it should be. It's, it's, it's an incredible feat of arms and it's an incredible sacrifice, which we can only look at because obviously we never went through that kind of thing and the ukrainian angle again is 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 bitterly ironic but it's there and he can't deny it i mean ukrainian forces or ukrainian ethnic nationals fought at stalingrad and fought obviously for the red army throughout the the great patriotic war a lot of them were nationalists that fought on the german side maybe that's where you've got this fascist kind of insult that they keep throwing at zelensky's government but uh I think it's something like 5 million Ukrainians fought in the Red Army during the, the Second World War, and they suffered 1.9 million casualties, which is more than the USA, Britain, and France put together. Uh, I mean, that's just the Ukrainians. And then you've got all the other ethnic groups, Siberians, Chechens, Tatars, uh, Tajiks. They were all represented there because it's such a huge battle. Well, the numbers are extraordinary. And, but I want, and I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you, because... You know, it's called the Great Patriotic War. Probably of of all the countries, Britain is one of those ones that, you know, people always say the British are obsessed with the Second World War. Yeah. But that's certainly true of Russia as well, isn't it? Uh, Aren't they slightly obsessed with the the Great Patriotic War? Well, they are. But I would say that uh, I think it's justified. I mean, if you look at the losses, I mean, 26 to 28 million casualties in Western Russia alone, uh, or the European side of Russia, I should say, you're looking at 78,000 villages, towns and cities destroyed by the, inv- the invading German Axis armies. The civilian losses, I would imagine every Russian you talk to uh, has a relative that, that died or was wounded or served excuse me, in the war. I mean, you look at Putin. Uh, his own brother, wasn't he? His own brother and his father. Well, his father was wounded uh, at Leningrad and his brother was killed in the defence of Leningrad as well. So he's got that personal stake and he, th- th- they all have. And you can't help, it's what I say in my presentations with some of the photos that I show that I took when I was on my visit there. The, the size of the commemorations and the size of these statues in some ways, you could say, well, they're you know, some of them are, you'd say, are grotesque or they, they're just over the top. But when you actually think about the losses, say, for instance, we just mentioned the Mamayev Kurgan, uh, where you've got the Motherland Call statue. And it's, it's an, it's, I think it is the tallest statue in Europe. Uh, it's enormous. But then that, that's arguably the most contested piece of land anywhere in the whole of the Second World War. Hundreds of thousands of 
mainly men died trying to take, retake, defend that hill because it was pivotal to the battle. And again, it's, it's a thing I show in my presentation where you're always told, well, you know, the grass didn't grow back on, on this hill for five years after the battle because it's so contaminated with armaments. They did their best to clean it up. And I got there, it's 80, as you said, 80 years ago now, but I got there 78, 77 years ago when I was there. I was just walking along off the grass. I was walking through this muddy stretch and I stood on something. I thought, oh, what's that? And it was a tiny piece of metal sticking out the ground. It's freezing. It's like it was minus 18. It was a really, really cold day. And I thought, oh, I'll pick it up. That's a souvenir. And I couldn't pick it up. And, and so cut long story short, after half an hour of digging with my bare hands on my knees, I pulled out the whole tail fin of a Soviet heavy mortar shell, literally proper both hands, huge, weighed about two, two to three kilos. Uh, and, I, and that's just me, you know, nearly 80 years after the battle, I'm just, I'm just going for a walk in the park after I'd seen the Mamey of Kurgan. And, uh, and I donated it to the city saying, do you want this? Cause obviously I can't take it back through customs. So, uh, but that, that's, that just dawns on you just the kind of, shocking loss i'd imagine the french can definitely we can see it because of the losses that we suffered in the somme i would imagine and the french certainly because of what they suffered at verdun mm. and again that that's definitely a, a it's definitely reflected in the french because there's over there's over 150 boulevards squares train stations subways named stalingrad in france alone still today and so there's definitely people can see the connections there in terms of just the sacrifice. It's a, it certainly makes you think that's, that's a, that's a very good way to end it Ian. Um, so thanks so much for coming on. It's the lighthouse of Stalingrad. Um, I also, uh, you know, it'd be great to get you on in the future because you've also written some other books um, in particular checkpoint, Charlie and yeah. the cold war be great. To I mean, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, uh, Central and East European history is just, I suppose it is my thing. And I've, I've always been obsessed uh, with East and West Germany and the situation during the Cold War. So, yeah, that 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 book is very close to my heart because that, that was like four years work. And I interviewed nearly 80 people uh, on all different nationalities and and both sides of the, the Berlin Wall as well. Great stuff. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming on and speak to you soon. Thank you. And Merry Christmas, everyone. Coming up on Tuesday, I've got a bonus episode on top 10 historical movies where my top 10 will face off against the top 10 of film director Tim Hewitt. Do join me then. We have a few controversial choices. More podcasts coming on the way, including top 10 historical Christmases. I've got Peter Hughes on writing history today. Joanna Hickson on Henry VII and Henry VIII, and a special on the trial and execution of Charles I, plus much, much more. So please do join me and subscribe. In the meantime, thank you and good night.